Welcome to the Church Podcast, where we learn about one historical figure or event, investigate the Bible, and make a theological statement, at least one theological statement, sometimes many, sometimes few, but at least one. So let's talk history, let's talk about theology, let's talk about historical theology, and let's talk about the church. Now this is part two of our series of podcasts, a three part series of podcasts called Whitfield versus Wesley, The Right Way to Understand Salvation. Now, in our first podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about who these men were, and then we also talked about salvation and the foundational ways that we can understand salvation, and the reason why I walked us through salvation in a systematic way is unless we understand salvation and the different aspects, different parts of it and how it fits together, then it will be very intense for us and very difficult for us to understand what in the world are Whitfield and Wesley even arguing about. And I loved uh, so many comments from you guys. I laid out a 10 Um, step, a 10 order, remember the Latin phrase of ordo salutis, the the order of salvation. I laid out 10 parts of that. I ripped them off right off the pages from Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology, uh, the 1994 edition of that. I think it's been updated. I hope it's been updated since then. That was a long time ago. And I did kind of my own commentary on each one. And I had uh, emails that came back to me that um, str- people struggled with, with some of what I was talking about and, and, and the list and how it was ordered. And so before we kind of get rolling, uh, I, I just want to share with you a couple of, uh, of discontentment that had, that, that had come up multiple times with people that had sent emails. And by the way, sending emails to us at church.ahistory um, at gmail.com, that's church.ahistory at gmail.com. That is a great way to interact with with me, letting me know that you're understanding the material or you're not or you don't really care about the material. I I had an email from a guy that just said, I thought this was going to make me feel good. It's too deep. I don't like this. I'm not going to listen anymore. And that's great. Don't know why he uh, he took the time to email me that. But on the other hand, there are people who have said, you know what, I I have needed an outlet to um, hear um, what answers to some of the questions that I have had. Um, There was one email here where a young lady said, I've always wondered about the men and women whose shoulders we stand upon as the Western Evangelical Church. And what a great comment to make because we do stand on the shoulders of men and women. So Kristen from Indiana, thank you for making such an astute observation that we do stand on the shoulders of many, many saints. A lot of times people think that there was the New Testament with Jesus, and then he died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and then his followers, specifically Paul, wrote the majority of the New Testament in the book of Acts, following Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, the book of Acts. We hear about Peter, and we hear about the apostles and what they're doing. And then people think there's just some muddied stuff that happens for 2,000 plus years, and then there's us. 
And that is a very faulty way of viewing church history, which is part of my passion to teach and to talk about this on this podcast. I thank you so many. I thank you to so many of you who are listening to this podcast because I know that history, again, sometimes people think it's boring, never made sense to me. Um, But as far as the content for this um, three-part series, it was very interesting. The emails that came in, people that were um, concerned, or I would say concerned, but they were thinking about what I had said, it it really came back to the order salutes, the order of salvation, as I laid it out. I had talked about it like this. There is an election, which is God's choice of people that will be saved. The gospel calls so proclaiming the message of the gospel, um, regeneration, being born again. And then, at, this is the very first time I believe that people do anything at all. Um, there is a conversion where people put their faith in Jesus as their Savior, and they repent of their sins, and they understand the grace that we have been given through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Now, there are a couple of people that emailed me and said, I just don't agree with two of those four beginning steps of salvation. So many people said this is a many, meaning a couple that emailed in, um, said they believe that, that what happens is that God through what we'll call provenient grace or God through um, grace uh, uh, given to all people, um, that's what election is. So when the Bible talks about election, election is God electing to send his son to die on a cross, live the life we couldn't live, die the death we should have died, and then raising from the dead, conquering sin and death, and that all people are given the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus. And that is the gospel call. The gospel call is for preachers, for um, evangelistic work, for you just sharing your faith with your neighbor um, or somebody around you, whoever it may be. That is the gospel call. And then from that call, a response is the putting of faith in Jesus and repentance of sin. So the issue kind of lies in the um, definition of election, God's choice of people who will be saved, or God's choice of giving grace to all who could be saved, um, and also, number three, the regeneration of being born again before a person's able to put their faith in, in, and also repent of their sins. Now, these are things that we will see in our conversations, our conversation through letters and through a track that Wesley wrote, and we will begin to see that these are the areas where Whitfield and Wesley also differed. And these are areas where theologians continue to differ now. I would just give this as a stern warning that Although it is important to understand theologically where we're at and kind of dig into that and work out our faith in that way, I believe that working out our faith is not just our actions or living a holy life or overcoming the issues within our life. I believe it is um, understanding the theologies, the study of God and and the things that we have um, come up with 
um, because God has given us a mind. And God would not give us a mind to reason and then tell us when it comes to me, don't use that mind of reason. It makes no sense at all. So if we use our mind to um, create medical breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs, write literature that passes and passes through the, the ages or art that passes through the ages, well, that mind should also be used to understand who God is. But what we're going to do in this podcast is we're going to get into the actual writings of Wesley and um, Whitfield, and then our third and final podcast, a part of this three-part podcast, Whitley, Whitley, Whitfield, Whitley, Whitfield versus Wesley, the right way to understand salvation. The third one we will talk specifically about where I feel the men have differed from a biblical understanding and how what I feel is the right way to understand salvation. So it could be that the third podcast in the series may be the most controversial in the sense that I am going to be sharing how I feel. And you may completely disagree, which is totally fine. I've said that all along. Um, fine in the sense that uh, I know that people work out where they are and they think through things, but not fine in the sense that people may have an understanding of salvation that is not biblical. In that sense, their minds, their thoughts, the way they uh, they look at salvation needs to be changed. Why is that? Because our our understanding of salvation ultimately gives us our perspective of the way we see God and who he is and what he's done. So I want to talk about Wesley. Um, I talked about before, he wrote a pamphlet called Free Grace. And this was the pamphlet that um, we'll see kind of sends Whitfield over the edge. And Whitfield says, I, I need to respond to this. This is too much. I had said that Wesley was, uh, he was preaching, he was teaching, he was planting churches, and he was focusing in on the way he believed election worked out and some of those things um, throughout the course of uh, his theological journey. But there came a point where he went from just preaching what he believed to, to preaching against specifically what we would call the Calvinistic view, which we'll get kind of what that means, Calvinistic view. And again, I, I would like to do a podcast some at some point that just explores what is the art, what is an Arminian, Wesleyan Arminian view of salvation. And I would love to do a podcast of what is a Calvinist view of salvation. And it seems as though this podcast would be the one that would do that. But really, again, I'm focusing on the relationship and the conversation between Whitfield and Wesley um, for two reasons. I think we can learn a lot about salvation by t putting two kind of views together. Uh, but also, I think that there's value in looking at two men who were passionate about reaching the lost for Christ. Um, in They interacted with one another with respect, even though they disagreed, which we see it, it's almost a uh, um, it's almost a a you know we we rarely ever see respect and disagreements anymore. So in Wesley's writing of Free Grace, his views at this point are clearly developed. He articulates a general displeasure with the Calvinistic doctrine of election 
and he moves into a near fanatical call for the teaching to be put away for the sake of the church. But in this, in this pamphlet, he begins with an olive branch of sorts by stating his agreement that salvation comes from the Lord and only from the Lord. He says this, this is a quote, It does not depend on his, meaning a human being's, endeavors. It does not depend on the good tempers or the good desires or good purposes and intentions. For all of these flow from the free grace of God. They are the streams, not only the fountain. They are the fruits of free grace and not the root. They are not the cause, but the effect of it. Whatsoever is in man or done by man, God is the author and doer of it, which is, very, uh, which is election talk, which is, um, that is an olive branch. So if he's talking to people that would, um, uh, theologians or pastors or people would hold on to the idea that election means that God chooses some to be saved, he is uh, stating that his understanding is that grace comes from the Lord. So it is not what we do, but grace comes from the Lord. This is, after all, the orthodox view that he's coming alongside of. So he is making sure that people know he has you know, gone too far away from that. But then Wesley moves on to his critique. Now, he gently begins by asking questions, and he asks questions by stating things and and kind of setting his case for what he believes. He says this, for example, Call it, therefore, by whatever name you please, election, here, he's calling election out, and predestination or reprobation, it comes in the end to the same thing. And this is where he's going to state the problem in his mind. The sense of all is plainly this, by virtue of an an eternal, unchangeable, irresistible decree of God, one part of mankind are infallibly saved and the rest are infallibly damned. So he is attacking this idea that God chooses some and others by saying this this doctrine, um, if you believe this, what follows from God chooses or elects those who he would save is that there are some that are saved and there are some that are damned. So he says, this is where this leads. So if you don't know where this is going, if this is what you believe, this is what is happening. He goes on, it being impossible that any of the former should be damned or that any of the latter should be damned. Now, in Wesley's mind, this doctrine runs contrary to the very essence of God, and you may feel this as well. What does this mean about God's love? He sees many issues with this, not the least of which is that it simply is not fair. And this is what I've heard before. God's election that some would be saved and that some wouldn't be saved, that just does not seem fair. Now, just as a side note, I think Wesley or uh, Whitfield is going to also um, uh, throw down this argument as well. But when you hear a person say, this is just not fair, we need to understand that that's not the strongest argument against election, election being God, chooses those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. And here's the reason. 
The reason is that in order for this to not be fair, it assumes that all human beings should be saved or are able to be saved or deserve salvation. Therefore, if some are given salvation and some are not given salvation, then it's not fair. So let me give this illustration to you. Imagine there are 10 men in a line. So 10 men in a line. All of these men have killed someone. They're all murderers. Every single one of them. Now God, in his grace, he decides that two of these 10, he is going to save from the penalty, from the penalty for what they have done. So they all deserve penalty. Let's just say life in prison. They all deserve that. Well, God steps down and he takes two and he said, I'm going to, um, I'm going to pay this price. You're no longer a criminal anymore. I am taking you to be, I'm, I'm taking you out of this lineup. Now, God doing that, does that, does that, is that unfair? Well, it may seem unfair on the surface, but you have to remember that the other eight that were not chosen are still murderers. And that is important. They're still murderers. So if God chooses to save wicked people while leaving other wicked people, those wicked people are still wicked. And this is important, I believe. Um, And I think that when we think about election, we have to think in terms of, again, like use our reason. But back to uh, Wesley's thoughts, who, which are far superior to uh, my thoughts. Um, this theme runs throughout his thoughts that we've been talking about. This just isn't fair. It doesn't seem like God. I don't understand this. This just does not seem like God. How could God save some and damn others without any regard for hope in the future of those who have been damned? Wesley also begs the question of how proponents of election can hold to the love of God. He says, well, he asks the preacher, how could a preacher, well, how a preacher could be both passionate about preaching the gospel and hold to a belief in election? He says, this is his quote from Free Grace, but if this be so, then all preaching is in vain. Why are we preaching if God has already elected who would be saved? This makes no sense. And many people now would say this makes no sense. He says, it is needless to them that are elected, for they, whether with preaching or without, will infallibly be saved. He doesn't stop with questions for the clergy about preaching. He goes on to consider the effects of the doctrine of election upon all Christians and how they live their lives. Wesley believed that a firm belief in the doctrine of election would cause Christians to be non-committal and amoral when it came to the commands of Scripture and the call for disciples of Jesus to strive for holiness. Why? What, what, what does this matter? Why do we preach? Why do we live in a way that Jesus would want us to live? 
Now, these thoughts, of course, are developed from his high appreciation for pietism and for holiness. And he, he argues, what then, if you know they are one or the other, that they are either elected or not elected, all of your labor is void and, in, and is in vain, perhaps. Then finally, Wesley makes a case that the doctrine of election stands on shaky ground because as he sees it, the scriptures that are used to defend this position are contradicted in other biblical texts. And this is where he gets, this is a great argument that he begins to use. He says, for it is grounded in such interpretation of some texts, more or few, if it matters not, maybe it does matter, as, fl- as they, they flatly contradict all the other texts. So there's texts that say one thing and then they contradict other texts. And indeed the whole scope and tenure of Scripture is contradiction. The tenor of scripture is, is the tenor of of scripture is a contradiction. Now I would say um, in reading this, and again Whitfield is going to uh, address some of these things when he writes back to him, but to say scripture contradicts itself is not a good argument. That one of the ways it contradicts itself is the truth, while the other is not the truth. Again, let me say that again. If you look at Scripture and you're trying to make a case for one doctrine or another, it is not a good argument to say, well, they contradict, therefore what I believe is correct. Instead, um, what theologians have said is there has to be compatibilism. Compatibilism. And there are Scriptures that do contradict, but... We just don't understand. There is a mystery behind the fact that some scriptures tend to contradict one another. And that is difficult sometimes to understand. And I wish I could, I wish I had time to show you uh, these scriptures side by side. As evidence to this claim, he states a portion of scripture that has been used in this debate ever since it, ever since this has been going on. He says, and this is his quote, For instance, this, the assertors of this doctrine interpret the text of Scripture. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, as implying that God, in a literal, literal sense, hated Esau and all the reprobated from eternity. Now what can possibly be more flat contradiction than this? not only to the whole scope of the tenure of Scripture, but also to all those particular texts in which God ex- expressly declares his love. Now, Wesley's free grace had been set as a rallying cry for the Arminian cause, and he, that's why his name has actually been set with Armin. So Wesleyan Arminian would be a position that people would take. They would call it that. But it would be his collegiate friend, his holy club friend, George Whitfield, that would answer some of these questions. But I want to go back just real quickly, real quickly. Now, Wesley uses this passage in Romans chapter 9 is where he's bringing this passage to light. And in this passage, Paul, who's writing this text of Scripture, Romans chapter 9 says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Now, this is an actual statement that takes place. Paul is giving kind of a rundown of what has happened in the Old Testament as he's writing to the Roman church. And Wesley says, but this makes absolutely no sense because so many other scriptures say that God loves everyone. This makes no sense at all. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You know, we can keep going and keep going and keep going. But again, the argument tends to be a little weak because if your argument is this scripture that I'm reading in in this book, in the Bible, I believe the Bible is the word of God and it is inerrant and I believe that and I'm reading that and this passage just simply does not make sense. At least you cannot take it at face value. But this other verse that I'm bringing to the table, we need to look at this verse through eyes of, we need to take this literally. So you can't take the same book and you look at the same book as inerrant, and you take one passage and say, I don't, I don't get this passage, and you argue against this passage with another passage from the exact same book. Just makes no sense at all. So here we are. We are addressing the whole idea of uh, what it means to respond to your Christian brother or sister while being respectful, but while also being direct with your concerns of how they are talking about salvation. So what I want to do is I want to talk about Whitfield and his response to Wesley in the form of a letter. And this is where it all comes together. So we've heard Wesley. Now let's hear Whitfield. Now following Wesley's bold and written arguments concerning the doctrine of election, Whitfield was moved to take action. Yes, in fact, Whitfield clearly felt that Wesley's influence combined with his articulate argumentation skill and view of election posed a grave threat to the biblical theology of people across Europe and across the American colonies. So Whitfield felt like he needed to speak up. Whitfield decided to act by writing and then publishing a letter directly to Wesley. Whitfield had battled with whether he should write a public letter saying, and then this is a quote by Whitfield, I am very apprehensive that our common adversaries will rejoice to see us differing amongst ourselves. But what can I say? The children of God are in danger of falling into error. What a conundrum that he finds himself. He says, I don't even want to address this. Because if I address this, then people who are our adversaries, who want to see both of us fall, are going to look at us and say, they can't even get along. But he says, I have no choice because what I believe is so important that the people of God understand. The children of God, he calls it are in danger and falling into error. So Whitfield believed in this letter that he sends in 1741, he believes that this idea of election, of salvation, is more than just some kind of outside thought process, some thing that people kind of think about in the peripheral, but is it's not really important. But he thinks that this thing that's being talked about election, sanctification, God's choice, his sovereignty are worth 
the danger of those who are adversaries coming after the two of them. He also understood that his stand against the doctrine of Wesley would put him at odds with many of his contemporaries. Believe it or not, Wesley was extremely influential. Some of his thoughts, his writings, pastors started to think, you're right, election doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would elect some but not elect others. So, he says this, this letter, Whitfield says this, this letter no doubt will lose me many friends. And for this cause, perhaps God has laid this, this difficult task upon me. Wow. So this will lose me many friends. People may not like me, but I feel strongly that we need to understand salvation as the scripture teaches us to do. In the letter, Whitfield builds a very convincing case that Wesley's view of election is misled and unfounded. So let us look at Whitfield's answer to a few of the foundational objections set forth by Wesley that we heard earlier. Then further examine Whitfield's complete view of election in the life scripture. We will do that probably in podcast number three. Whitfield chooses first to answer the charge that the doctrine of election must be false based on alleged contradictions in Scripture. Whitfield reaches into the classical compatibilistic view that God's election does not take away from responsibility or the responsibility of the individual. By interjecting this view, Whitfield implies that one text cannot be discounted by another text under the assumption that there are things we simply do not understand. In this way, there are texts we may feel that contradict others. We talked about that earlier. While they are ultimately agreeable in a larger sense, so other times we'll we'll, we'll read a scripture and then we'll read another scripture and we'll say they... Um, they don't work together, they contradict one another, and Whitfield um, is proposing that it could be that they do work together, they must work together if they're in the same book, if they're in the Bible, the inerrant word of God, but we may not understand the larger sense by which they interact. Whitfield also draws on scripture to make his point that the text Wesley chose to use may not be contradictory even to human eyes. He says, this is, this is Whitfield, he says, Indeed, honored sir, I love that he gives him respect. He doesn't just argue back and forth, but he gives him respect. You who spend hours and hours going back on Facebook and other social media, making sure that everybody knows where you stand politically, religiously, socially, whatever, you may be surprised if when you address others, you show honor how much more your view will be received. And he says this, Sir, it is plain beyond all contradiction that St. Paul, through the whole eighth chapter of Romans is speaking of the privileges of those only who are really in Christ. He goes on a few lines later in his letter to Wesley. 
Had anyone a mind to prove the doctrine of election as well as a final perseverance, he could hardly wish for a text more for his purpose than that which you have chosen to disprove it. Wow. So he comes back to Wesley and he says, what you have brought up, the text you have brought up, is the text that we can put or we can ground or could be the foundation of the Calvinistic understanding of election. Whitfield addresses the issue of holiness, which is the piety that John Wesley hangs his hat. In Wesley's free grace, he admittedly states that a firm belief in election drives the people of God away from holiness. Whitfield makes the case that this prognosis is the prideful assumption that one can determine another's motives for living a holy life. Who are we to judge why people do what they do? Who are we to judge these things? He says, it is true that the doctrine of election would confirm that any attempt to be holy in order to impress God or keep one's name written in the Lamb's book of life is invalid. There is another purer reason to strive towards holiness. Here we get into the meat of, in that ordo salutes, we talk about sanctification, right conduct before the Lord. And Wesley says, to believe in election, to believe in these things, there's no reason to live a holy life. And Whitfield says, now wait, there is a reason to strive towards holiness. He says, this is the love one has for the Lord and the drive that love provides. Even in this understanding, one must remember that sanctification is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. Whitfield says this concerning the works of holiness. He says this, And why? Because they know God saved themselves by an act of his electing love, and they know not but he may have elected those who now seem to be the most abandoned. So why do we live holy lives? And really it comes down to this. What is the motive for living a holy life? Is the motive for living a holy life guilt and the hope to be holy and the hope to be presented as pure, or is the hope, is the hope, is the foundation of the hope that we are so in love with God that we desire to be like Him because we are obsessed with Him. Now, this is the difference. This is one of the differences. It is election. Election, Wesley says, is it, it makes no sense because within election, why would anyone want to strive towards holiness? Why would anyone want to preach? Why would anyone want to focus on anything related to God? Because you're either in, meaning heaven, or you're out. So what does it matter? What does it matter? What is the basis? Why? Why 
strive to be holy. Why strive to be holy? And Whitfield comes back and he says that to strive to be holy is not a to strive to be to be just perfect to to achieve some greatness in this life to achieve what it means to be holy or perfect in this life instead what it means to live to be more like Christ is to understand the grace by which we meaning Christians are given and in that way, we did nothing to achieve salvation. Therefore, we can do nothing to live like Christ ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean that people are um, the people who don't put their faith by choice in, in in Christ. It doesn't mean that repentance is to take place. It is. Now, I have an illustration for you. An illustration is, is this. If I were to go out with um, a guy, a friend of mine, and we were to get coffee together, or we have a cigar together, we have a beer together, whatever we're doing, and the whole time we're talking to each other, he never brings up his wife. Not one time. Let's say we spend two hours together just spending time together, and not one time does he bring up his wife. What am I to think? First of all, I don't even know if he, maybe if it's the first time I spend time with him, I don't even know if he's married. At the very least, I know this is not an important part of his life. Now, what if I went out with somebody, I spent time with them for an hour and a half, and the whole time they're talking about their wife, the whole time, my friend, the whole time this man is talking about his wife, what I take from that is this man sees his wife as being important. So, listen here with this illustration. So, with Wesley, with, with what Wesley is saying is that man would come to the table, I would be sitting across from him, and he would feel a compulsion to talk about his wife because that's what he's supposed to do. So he will talk about his wife, he'll push it into conversation because he wants me to know that I am excited about my wife, I want you to know that I am in love with my wife because that's how I am supposed to be. Now, Whitfield says that you come to the table, this man comes to the table, and I'm sitting across from him, we're spending time, he cannot help but talk about his wife. Why? Because he is in love. Why? Because he knows his wife has shown him grace. Why? Because he feels he is not worthy to be with his wife. These are two different ideas of what it means for action to come out of you. One being, I have to be or do a certain thing because this is what I'm supposed to do. And the answer to that is, I do this thing. I become this thing, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, but out of the freedom that I find in being a Christian. On one hand is the man who comes to the table and says, I should talk about my wife so that Matt understands that I am in love with my wife. I need to do that. Whereas the other man simply allows for himself to be himself 
which is a man who will talk about his wife because he loves his wife. Now, these are differences. These are things that Whitfield and Wesley have talked about. And I want to continue to move into how they interact with each other. And that's what we're going to do in part three. What I want to do is I want to give you a few books, a few books that I think would be very helpful for you to read. And the books, I will just say, have a Calvinistic lean. Um, But it's still important because there's a lot of history in these books. These books are very, very specific. So I want to recommend them to you. I want to recommend Salvation by Grace. The subtitle is The Case for Effectual Calling and Regeneration, which will kind of piggyback over some of the things that we've talked about. And this book is by Matthew Barrett. Matthew Barrett. B-A-R-R-E-T-T. B-A-R-R-E-T-T. The foreword is written by Thomas Schreiner and Bruce Ware. Um... Matthew Barrett is a Ph.D. from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is the Assistant Professor of Christian Studies in California Baptist, at California Baptist University and is the Executive Editor of Credo Magazine. All three of these men, Matthew Barrett, Thomas Schreiner, Bruce Schwer, are well, actually, Thomas Schreiner and Bruce Swear still teach at my graduate school, Alma Mater, which is the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Very proud to have done my graduate work there. Um, great, great, great book. Also, another book, probably my favorite professor during graduate school at the, the, uh, at, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is Dr. Sean Wright. And the reason is I love church history, and he is just an absolute monster when, it talks about, when, when he talks about uh, church history. Sean Wright, or Dr. Sean Wright, I've taken, th- I took, I think, three Uh, Maybe two classes, one seminar on church history from him. Extremely insightful, a great teacher, um, has just an absolute uh, mastery of church history as a whole, all the way from Augustine to Luther to now. And although I think he focuses more on um, the early church, and then he he talks he he has done some writing on Theodore Beza, um, and uh, and Calvin and you know during the Reformation that period as well. But this book I would this book is just an amazing book and and you know the book I just said by Matthew Barrett uh, Salvation by Grace is a great book. It's a lot to chew. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you're not used to the academic setting. Um, you can get through it, but it'll be a little intense. But I challenge you to do it. I, you know, I, I challenge anybody to read any book. I'm not one of these guys that, well, you can't. This isn't, you know, you aren't up to the, to the task of reading this book. I think everybody can learn from the book. But this book right here, Dr. Sean Wright wrote a book. Um, there's actually a series of books that there's a a couple of these. Um, 
a couple of these that have the, they're just questions and the questions are answered. That's the format that's written in. Um, Dr. Wright is professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Again, a very proud to throw out my, my graduate school alma mater, and a pastor at Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He is also the author of Believer's Baptism, Sign of a New Covenant in Christ, which is also a great book. Um, Dr. Schreiner also gave him props on this book, which is cool. Dr. Schreiner is like one of those uh, guys, you, if you're writing a theological book, you want to get him on your side and, uh, and, and uh, to, uh, um, to promote what you're doing. This is called 40 Questions About Calvinism. 40 questions about Calvinism. And again, how it's set up is you, you opened up the book, I'm literally doing it right now, to the contents, and there's several parts, but in these parts you'll have questions, and he'll just answer those questions. For example, what is the difference between Calvinism and Reformed tradition? What are the five points of Calvinism? What truths is Calvinism trying to protect? Jump down to... Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, um, what is human freedom, according to Arminianism, which would be good given the conversation we're having right now? Does the Bible teach compatibilism, which is, we've talked about that. That's the idea that there are passages that seemingly are disconnected, yet um, we know that those, the, because the Bible is inerrant in some way, shape, or form, they do support each other. Um, so yeah, part one, introductory questions, part two, questions about salvation, part three, additional theological questions, and part four, practical questions, which these would be good for most of you. Uh, why pray if God has ordained all things? Do Calvinists practice evangelism and missions? I mentioned before, Whitfield was a prolific preacher, preached over 10 million people, 18,000 sermons, yet he was a Calvinist. Um, what, how, how, do you, uh, how does that make sense? Um, can Calvinists freely and genuinely offer the, this, the gospel to all people? Do Calvinists pursue personal holiness, which was the charge of Wesley that says, and that doesn't make any sense? Um, Sean Wright, Dr. Sean Wright actually addresses that. Does Calvinism lead to doubts about assurance of the salvation? Do questions in this book matter? I love how he does that because he says, why why read this book? Honestly, I probably should have done that to be in the book. But anyway, um, it's been good to spend time with you. Um, next Saturday or Sunday, I will release, or we will release rather, uh, part three of Whitfield versus Wesley, The Right Way to Understand Salvation. And I will make some pretty bold uh, theological statements that you'll either hang with them or you won't. But either way, you will have something to chew on and something to think about. So until we talk again, I am excited to uh, see what God is doing in you and in your mind as you think through these very, very important things.